All right. Um, we're going to be in, uh, we're going to spend the first part of our time together in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, if you want to grab a Bible out of the pew somewhere near you, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 14 and 15 in particular. I just want to give you a minute to open up your Bibles if you wish to do that. Uh, New Year's Day, it's kind of exciting. We got some stories, some Bible, we're going to look at some Proverbs. That's enough to, to lighten anything up, right? Um, all right, but before we go into any of that, I would, uh, let's pray together, and then we'll get started. Dear Lord God, we are gathered here uh, around your word. We are here as a, a fellowship, as a community of faith, New Hope Church, to, to allow the truth that you have spoken to speak to us. God, we, we ask that in your power and your strength that your truth the unfiltered version of your truth would come out of these, um, this text and be affirmed in our minds and in our hearts in your power. So make that true of us um, and give strength to this time that we have uh, for your glory. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians. The love of Christ constrains us since we have made this judgment that one died for all Therefore, all died. And he died for all in order that the ones who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. This two verses in 2 Corinthians is a theological powerhouse. We're gonna dig into this a little bit, but before we get started, would you just take um, a second and consider this. We are gonna be talking about what could be in Christianity. I've called this could be Christianity. So we're gonna start by first taking a look at what is a Christian in the first place. And these two verses in 2 Corinthians are gonna give us some highlights. But what could be in Christianity? Where does this all start but with the love of Christ? This theological statement begins with the love of God and it ends with his resurrection. It's bookended by these two things. Everything in the middle we're gonna look at but let's just enjoy that, the love of God. Constrains us, we're gonna talk about that later. I'm gonna move over now to this next part. Since we have made this judgment. Now that's us making a judgment. The law, the love of Christ constrains us since we have made the judgment. I'm just gonna pause right here and say this to you. The invitation God has made for us to live our faith out with him in relationship to him, he asks us to reason, to think, and to judge. We're all in, we're all got a part in this grand play of life. We are not to mindlessly go about our business. We are to think, we are to reason, and we are to judge. There you have it. Since we have made this judgment that one died for us, one. Consider that one. That one is Jesus Christ. But more than just one, he is the only one. Jesus is a unique entity unto himself. He is man and God. That's him. So when we talk about one died for all, it's not just a one, it's the one. It's Jesus Christ. And when he died, we all died with him. All. We have made this judgment that one died for all and therefore all 
died. Pause for a minute and consider with me the scope of that statement. Jesus Christ, God-man, died, therefore all died with him. There is enough power in the death of Jesus Christ to include in it the death of every single person who has ever lived and will ever lived, will ever live moving forward. Think about the power of that. So we can let our minds wander a little bit now. Um, we read the news, look at the internet. We know the mess that is going on right now all around the world. Let's just think Iraq and Syria, for example. All the sin, all the this, bleh, that's going into making that happen, the death of the one is enough to account for all that mess. We don't have to go that far. We can go, I grew up outside Chicago. They've been making plenty of news, the south and west side of the city. They're setting records with, for violence and killing there. So this recklessness of humankind, we've all died with Christ. Um, don't miss this part. That sin is worthy of death. From God's perspective, sin deserves death. That's why Jesus died. Jesus died for all, therefore all died. Um, there are consequences for our sin. The wages of sin is death, right? From the perspective of heaven, that's what sin deserves. Uh, even in our imperfect justice system in our country, in our culture today, if, if you do something wrong, and if you commit a certain crime, the punishment is death. So what has happened is that God has judged the sinfulness of humanity as being worthy of death. His perfect, holy assessment of the situation. But here's the thing. The verdict has been reached and the punishment has already been carried out. That's the big difference. That one died for all. Jesus died for you. Now, moving on. In order that, in order that, those are beautiful words. Never forget that, New Hope Church, that the death of Jesus Christ, this death that holds so much power that it has the capacity to cover, include in it all of humankind, there was a consequence, there is a next step, there is a purpose to this death. God had that in mind. Something else would happen. That, let's go back to 2 Corinthians, Ryan. In order that, look at this. Die for all in order that the ones who live might no longer live for themselves. Well, now here's an interesting turn. The love of Christ constrains us since we have made this judgment. Look at the word all now with me. That one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, Okay, God died for everyone. He's now said it three times in just under a sentence and a half. Okay, so take comfort in this. I know that some of us approach this with baggage, with complications, with problems. All. Jesus just didn't die for the well-behaved. Just, Jesus just didn't die for those people who have, have their act together. That is a misunderstanding. Don't buy into that. All died, died for all, all died. However, now we do have a turn of events in our little theological treatise because it's the ones who might live for him. 
Not everyone's going to do that. Not everyone is going to respond to that. Unfortunately, we go all, 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 the ones that will no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. So to be a Christian is to have not just died with Christ, but to have come alive for the one who died for them. A Christian is one who has come alive and now lives for the one who died for him or her. What is a Christian? Charles Hodge was a 19th century theologian. He, was, uh, he ran Princeton Theological Seminary back in the 19th century. And examining 2 Corinthians 5, these verses, he came up with this summary statement. I want you to see it. What is a Christian? It is being so constrained by a sense of the love of our divine Lord to us that we consecrate our lives to him. John Piper says it like this, being a Christian does not mean merely believing in our head that Christ died for us. It means being constrained by this reality. Can you see the distinction here? I want you to see this distinction here. This is important to me and it's important for all of us because I believe that in our culture, the, tend that we, the, the way that we tend to look at life and think about things, this is an area that we get off and, and don't often perceive it. Look at this again carefully. We are constrained, we judge. We are constrained, we, in other words, we don't judge that we are constrained. See, constraining, controlling, is not an idea. It's not the idea that we're constrained. We actually are. It's a physical outworking of the judgment of being acknowledged and recognized in Jesus' death. It's a physical action. John Piper continues, the truth presses in on us. It grips us, holds us. It impels and controls us. It surrounds us and won't let us run from it. It cages us into joy. The truth cages us into joy. A Christian is therefore constrained and controlled by the love of Christ. Constrained and controlled by the love of Christ. So that's our first sentiment, that's our first statement on what it, mean, being, what it means to be a Christian. I wanna move on with you and look at something that Jesus said in regard to what it means to be a Christian. We're gonna look at Matthew chapter 11. So we know now a Christian is constrained or controlled by the love of Christ. Look at me, uh, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus teaches this. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I wanna interpret it this way. Let's pretend we're with Jesus, we're hanging out, and he has just told us this. We're sitting at his feet. The New Testament hasn't even been written yet. Let's interpret this, let's allow his teaching to just hit it at face value, and let's go from there. So we look at this scripture verse, and we see some magnificent promises, some awesome opportunities in here. Let's take a look at those. I have them highlighted. Um, all who are weary and heavy laden, has anybody here ever had experienced being weary or heavy laden? And would you gladly not exchange your weariness or your heavy ladenness for the rest that comes with a relationship with Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Find rest for our souls. These are beautiful things. 
But let's be frank about these verses and I confess with you that sometimes when I read my Bible, I skip over things too. I have a tendency to draw into the part that, oh, oh, rest. I'm weary, I want rest. We skip over a couple things, primarily these two. Those are qualifiers. I know it's uncomfortable to say, but that's what, the, that's what Jesus taught, so that's what my responsibility is to teach with you. These are qualifiers. Do you want rest? Do you wanna, wanna let your burdens and exchange them for rest? Jesus says this, come to me and take my yoke upon you. Now, you notice the tone of his voice. He's definitely not, um, Jesus is in any way um, somehow nervous about the offer, but he's offering this to you, but he's, he, he comes to you with those two things. So Christ's offer to rest are conditional upon coming to him and taking his yoke upon you. Now there's a teacher that I follow. Um, I read his books and things quite uh, a lot. And Tim Keller, he's a pastor in, in New York City and I've heard him taught on this idea of being yoked to the will of God and he sees it as an opportunity for us to understand what it means to be a Christian. And I, quite frankly, I agree with him because we have a problem with, with this idea of being yoked, okay? Now, what is yoked? What, what, what would Jesus have been talking about? What do you think these people are interpreting him saying? He, you're gonna yoke a what? A farm animal, all right? You're gonna yoke a farm animal and it involves this idea of submission. And see, you, you look at your, all look at me with cold faces right now because I just said that. <laughs> That's just evidence. Ooh, submission, I don't know, the yoking, Michael. Back off. No, but this is, this is the concept. But here's the thing, when you really, we're gonna dig down and look at this, it's not so, it's not so bad. But we do, we tend to think of ourselves as strong, independent, or successful. We accomplish. I mean, I, we blow things up on the 4th of July. There you go. What is this yoke thing you're talking about? Well, let's talk about it. What does a yoke do for the farm animal? It gives us, it gives our work, it gives our life direction and purpose. The yoke gives direction and purpose. Let's have some fun with that illustration, okay? If we're talking about farm animals right now, what is a farm animal doing out in the field if it's not yoked? Nothing. Nothing. Walking around, looking around. And then eventually it dies. But what, does, what happens if you yoke your animal? Something is made. Something is produced. Something is, is reaped. Something is built. So I like to say this, um, working with worship team members, they, they tend to skew on the younger end of life. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, so with many young people, you talk about purpose and what do I do now? What's my next, next stage in life? I like to say this, one of the most beautiful things I think that Christ bought for us with his death was purpose. There, your fundamental purpose should never be in question as a Christian person. Your purpose is to bring glory to God and to build his kingdom. That's not gonna happen unless you're yoked to his will. You'll walk around and look around until you die. I'd rather be yoked. From Proverbs, oh our first Proverbs everybody, Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Second thing a yoke will do for you, it provides protection. 
without a yoke, as I have so eloquently just brought to our attention, we're on our own. You're on your own. But when you're yoked, that implies that somebody's driving. Who's driving? God. When you're yoked to the will of God, God is leading you, guiding you, directing you for his purpose and his glory. And there is nobody I'd rather have on the pilot seat of my life than God. That's what the yoke of God brings. This sounds a little more palatable than the idea of this idea of submission. But remember, even from our 2 Corinthians 5, the first action, the love of God, what it does is it constrains us. It binds us in, it surrounds us. From Proverbs chapter three, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So I'm gonna recap. What can we say about what it means to be a Christian? We're examining, we're, we, but by the time we get done with this, we want to think about what could be, what could be, and we want to look at it. Really, the answer is in the definition of what it even means to be a Christian. That's where the source of the could be aspect comes from. So I want to recap with you. We talked about that a Christian is constrained by the love of Christ. A Christian is yoked to the will of God, and here's the third one I'm gonna add as a summary of both our 2 Corinthians passage and our uh, Matthew passage that, of Jesus' teaching. A Christian no longer lives for themselves, but for the Savior that died for them. Now, you can define Christianity in other ways. I'm not saying this is a complete, total, airtight, theological definition, but based upon the two scripture verses we just examined, if you're going to define Christianity, these concepts have to be included. Being a Christian is reaching a conclusion that dying with Christ is worth gaining an eternal life for him. Being a Christian is reaching a conclusion that dying with Christ is worth gaining an eternal life lived for him. That's crazy talk. That's crazy talk. You may have heard it many times before, but just examine that for a second. God is asking you to no longer live for yourself, but for him. We read 2 Corinthians 5, um, the love of Christ constrains us since we have made a judgment that one died for all and therefore all died. The apostle Paul is writing those words to the Corinthian church. I wanna now take you to the previous verse, right before he gave that theological treatise on what it means to be a Christian, I want you to look at verse 13 now. Look what it says. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 13. For we, if we are beside ourselves, beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. That's first century talk for nuts! We're nuts, we're crazy. The Corinthians are going, you're out of your mind, you're out of your mind, and uh, uh, yes we are, we are, we're nuts, we're out of our mind. Part of what I want you to hear from me today is we all could ratchet up our crazy factor a little bit. We all need to be a little more nuts, if you don't mind. Um, I got a little story for you to, to help us enjoy this about being nuts. So a couple years back, I took a group of my nieces and nephews to a concert at the Breslin Center. 
And um, if you know my family, you know that um, that means there are, I mean, we're talking about nieces and nephews, it's not like a, like a postcard size group of people. You're, you know, my brother now has seven children, and so there was a lot of kids, and I don't know how many there must have been, six or seven of them, and I took them all to this concert, but unfortunately, I was a little late arriving to the concert. I'm never late. That's not true. Um, so because of that, we had to sit in the nosebleeds. Anybody ever been in the nosebleed seats of a concert? You know what that's like. You're kind of all by yourself up there. It's kind of depressing. And during this show, the band were doing this thing. They were great. We're all having a great time. And they did this thing where they were encouraging people to get up and dance. Come on, everybody, let's dance. And, you know, in those situations, especially at a Christian concert, because, you know, we're, we're Christians. We're going to behave ourselves. <laughs> so maybe four or five people, four or five rows deep, they were going. They were, they were in it. They were bopping. They were going. But as you went back from the stage, and I got great nosebleeds perspective, I'm thinking, eh, not so much dancing in like the 12th row, you know. So you get up all the way to where we are. I mean, it was, I mean, it's nothing, nothing going on. And I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you felt like the Holy Spirit was prompting you. I'm pretty sure this voice was the voice of the Holy Spirit. I had this moment, I'm sitting there and I'm looking down at my nieces and nephews and they're on the edge of their seat. I mean, they're gamers, they'll dance. They just needed a little something. They're on the edge of the seat waiting to go. And I had this, this little voice that says, Michael, you are a worship leader for a living. Uh, you know what the Bible says, brother. I think it's time for you to get up and boogie. I was just like, oh, really? Now, when I was younger, I'd like, I'd like to consider myself that I, I can dance. If you'd have asked me, I'd have been like, oh, I can dance. I think that was pretty much just to impress girls because I'm pretty sure I can't dance after having some, seeing some documentation of what it looks like. And, and so I, I, I know now what I'm called to do. So I was like, oh, yeah. And it's just like, you know, here we go. We're going to let it rip. And so I got up and I said, hey, kids, get your shoes on. And, and you know, we did the whole thing. And we got down into the area in the Breslau Center. We were up in one of the balconies. And the only really free space is that area right like where you go out and in. And so it was like that area, and we started dancing. I'm not gonna dance for you right now. Don't even ask me to dance. <laughs> and we started, they started cutting around, and, and my nieces and nephews and my kids, they're having a blast. But what's now starting to happen is that all, all of the other unfortunate children who came with late parents that are up with us are eyeing this little action that's going on, and they wanna be a part of it. So before you know it, we got people streaming in from all over the Nords bleeds, and when we got our own thing, kind of rocking, and then security came <laughs> and had to shut us down because we were, we were causing such a ruckus. And in that moment, I thought, well, there you go. I just did it. I got in trouble for being a Christian. <laughs> and I know this sort of thing is supposed to happen, but it's never happened before. And Oh, you had to sit down now. I'm like, I'm dancing too much. I've, I've, oh, and it was just such a beautiful moment. And, and I'm thinking that we need our, more of our neighbors, more of our coworkers need to consider us crazy. And you have my permission, okay? I mean, Paul, they thought Paul was nuts. You are nuts. You're out of your mind. Because what God did for us, what Jesus did for us, where he left, 
where he came, what he did, is it not, I mean, let's not even think about that. I mean, just try and take the Bible out of it for a minute and just use your own reasoning. When somebody commits to leave a perfect place with no sin and no needs, to come down and to be born into humble circumstances, to a poor family, and to die an excruciating death so you wouldn't have to, that is, that's something that we should respond to. Yes? But here's where I think we get it wrong. Because of the way that we understand the way the world works, we somehow think there's a, a scale there or something. We just can't imagine in our mind, in our subconscious mind, that a God would do that for us without somehow bartering something in return or asking something in return. He didn't. Can I ask you, did God consult you before he died for you? No, he did it. He didn't consult anybody. It had nothing to do what you could offer him in return. The eternal life that God has offered you in Christ Jesus has nothing to do with what you're capable of. But now, in discussing the radical nature of Christianity, remember when we were trying to ratchet up our crazy a little bit, looking at the fact that we have nothing back to offer to God, I'm gonna try and bring these two ideas together because I think we get them confused, and it's this. God's plan to redeem us, redeem us had absolutely nothing to do with what we could offer him in return. Yet, we have to leave room for the, to have the kind of faith, the quality of faith that God wants in us, even though he's not bartering us with us to get it. We have to pursue the kind of faith God demands from us, even though God's demands don't have the kind of consequences we usually associate with the word demand. If I demand something from my children, eventually there's gonna be some consequences. So I'm imperfectly living out my faith, as we all are, and lightning has not zapped me down yet. Maybe it wasn't a demand. I really think that that's like a subconscious conclusion we make. Not true. I want us to feel the weight of the radical nature of what it even means to be a Christian. It's to be nuts. Now, let's go here. Faith the size of a mustard seed does what? Moves. Faith the size of a mustard seed moves. Okay, faith the size of a mustard seed helps me get through my day. Yes, but that's not what he said. Faith the size of a mustard seed helps me, I don't know, you, you fill in your own kind of um, trivial-ish experience that we all, myself included, tend to apply to these types of teachings. Um, I don't have a hot, hot water heater in my house right now. I haven't had one for a while. And that, I got four kids, so that's, that's inconvenient, okay? We've been on trips, we've had Christmas, we had my parents over, and I know the last couple services when I mentioned that, I got all these handymen coming up to me, too. yeah, I know, I know, I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping to have hot water by the end of the day. This is inconvenient, this is a first world problem. Um, but it would, be, it would be a shame 
if, if I'm only going to apply a mounting move, like a, a mustard seed of faith to this level of thing. Living for Jesus, moving mountains. Again, a mountain is not an idea, it's a physical thing. You don't think Jesus was careful for his words, with his words? What is he saying? Faith can have physical consequences, physical implications. Things that are impossible for you to do could be done. Things that are impossible to build can be built. Physical, actual things. And Jesus had a lot to say about life with him, about building, about accomplishing impossible things. And um, in the Bible, we have recorded many of Jesus' parables, the kind of the metaphors. I want to review a couple of them with you. Um, Jesus taught about life with God like it's like um, treasure. It's like a lost coin. Uh, life with God is like sowing. It's like reaping. Jesus taught that it's like wakeboarding. No, he didn't. <laughs> that was the are you awake moment. But... It's New Year's Day, let's have some fun, right? We're gonna pause, I wanna talk about the greatness of faith, the faith that God has called us to live out, and I wanna add to, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you that my wakeboarding uh, parable is gonna compete with the Bible, that's not what I'm saying, but, but let's look at something unique, something new, and let's see what we can learn about faith from this. Now, wakeboarding is a water sport, okay? So what that means is that in order to wakeboard, you have to have a boat, that pulls you over the surface of the water. You still with me? All right, hang in there. We're just getting started. Now, wakeboarding is a thing you put on your feet, a big piece of something that you strap to your feet, and you ride sideways, kind of like you're surfing, okay? So imagine a boat pulling me, and I'm traveling this way when I wakeboard. All right, now, um, I grew up, as I mentioned before, a lot of my summers were spent on a lake. I always took odd jobs so that I wouldn't have to work during prime ski hours, so I was always either you know, skiing and working or goofing off. That was pretty much my childhood. And I did this with um, a, a group of, of friends. Now, uh, specifically, my metaphor of faith has to do with a particular wakeboard maneuver. You still with me? Good. It's called an air Rayleigh. Can you say that? Air Rayleigh. You are all now a little cooler than you were just a minute ago because you are now following me. Let me just explain this to you. Hang in there. If I'm going to do an air Rayleigh behind a boat on a wakeboard, remember I'm traveling this way, step one is you have to hurl yourself towards the wake of the boat at high speed. So boats move through the water, they create a wake, waves. So you, you hurl yourself at those waves and you hit them and you jump up in the air, but what's unique about this trick, Air Rayleigh, is that as you're in the air, you let your body and the board trail off behind you like this. So you fly through the air kind of parallel to the water. My kids always called it the Superman. Do the Superman, Daddy, so if you can imagine flying up in the air. Now this all sounds like a lot of fun, but there's one more step to this process, and that is you have to land. Yeah, you have to come down. And here's the thing about the Air Rayleigh, um, if you come down a little short, it really hurts because you have a piece of fiberglass strapped to your feet that kind of acts like a stopper, and you'll, you'll slap the water really hard. So this is, what, this is what I'm getting at. To do an air railing on a wakeboard, as your effort and increases, so does the pain of the crash with it. It's not opposite. It's like if, you, if, if this is success and you go here, you hurt here. 
You know what I mean? So the, if you don't really try it, it's not really going to hurt. But if you really try and almost make it, your face stings, all right? Now, let's, let's try to imagine how this is going to play out in a ski boat in the summer. I, I hung out with a small group of uh, ferociously competitive uh, friends. And so can you just kind of imagine with me what that was like? Throw it, dude. Do it. Go for it. And then you've got to decide. You've got to say, hmm, I'm not entirely sure you think I can do this. I think you just want to see me try it and crash and smack my face in the water. You can do it. So we spent much time um, encouraging ourselves, one another, to go out and give this a shot. Now, I have to pause and, and put a little clarification. I am not trying to tell you that as you dare faith, as you dare more and more faith that you're going to crash. That is not it. No metaphor is complete and perfect. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that if you dare and attempt an air rally, you'll fall. That's what I'm saying. Now, come out under the water with me. Come out under the water with me. You're there with me. Can you imagine being, you're standing on this piece of fiberglass, you're behind the boat, and you've got all sorts of motivation in the boat to do it. Um, and maybe your future spouse is in there. I'm not even sure. It was for me. But, so you have all this motivation. You have two decisions now. You're going to either not do it or you're going to do it as hard and as best as you can because middle ground is certain disaster. You, if you're going to try it, you're going to smack your face. You either don't do it or you give everything you have to it. Are you tracking with me now? I want you to capture this moment for this year, for 2017 New Hope Church, when you are faced with your temptation, when you are faced with your challenge, when you are faced with the set of circumstances that go so sideways on you, I want you to dare your faith and go all in. Dare the goodness of God. Test his compassion. Don't go halfway. Don't go halfway. Dare the goodness of God. Noah built an ark. Abraham bound his only son Isaac. Daniel refused to worship a false god. Moses returned to a pharaoh who had issued a death sentence on him. Rahab hid Israelite spies, um, risking her own life. Jonathan charged a garrison of soldiers pretty much by himself. David took off his armor before facing the giant Goliath. Here's a summary of the Bible, a summary. The Bible is one story after another of God accomplishing impossible things through imperfect people, demonstrating imperfect faith. The Bible is one story after another of God accomplishing impossible things through imperfect people, demonstrating imperfect faith. I want you to look at me with a quote. Richard Ellsworth Day, in his book, Filled with the Spirit, said it like this. It's gonna be on the screen, it's good. It would be of no surprise if a study of secret causes were undertaken to find out that in every golden era in human history, it proceeds ultimately from the devotion and righteous passion of one single individual. This does not set aside the sovereignty of God. It simply indicates the instruments through which God uniformly works. In many ways, 
there are really no bona fide mass movements. It may look that way, but at the center of the column, there is always at least one person who knows his God and knows where God is going. Now, I want to add this. With the faith God has given you, you still have breath in your lungs. That could be any of us. That could be any of us. Do you ever stop to consider that? Or are heroes of the faith distant? Is an, is an idea that we, we see off in the horizon? Or can we begin to see ourselves as having the same power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead to go out and move mountains for his name? I put in your, in your notes a couple names if you're looking for more details on how Richard Ellsworth Day can possibly make a bold statement like that, they're listed in your sermon notes. Go home and Google them and you will read some magnificent stories. At the end of one of Paul's letters to uh, one of the churches that he was ministering to, he clarified, he articulated something about the potential of the power of God for his church that I want us to look at now. So Ephesians, Ephesians chapter three, this is what Apostle Paul had to say about the potential, what could be, what could be with the power of God. Now to him, that's Jesus Christ, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or imagine according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Now, if you've been at New Hope for any length of time, you know this. The second half of the Bible, the New Testament, was not written in English, was it? It was written in Greek, see? There you go. Now, I am not a Greek scholar, so I'm gonna put something up there, but if you wanna ask me questions about it, you're gonna be really disappointed in my answer, I don't know a thing. However, I can point out this. Uh, Ryan, can you go back once? Okay, I want you to look at that word, far more abundantly. Does far more abundantly seem a little redundant to you? This, this is why. Now look at the Greek. Look at the two Greek words and the two hyper. You see the word hyper twice in there? Because it's in there twice. That's why we say far more abundantly. This is what God is saying to you. In your wildest imagination, while you're in your wildest imagination, you can't even imagine in your wildest imagination what I could possibly accomplish through you. In your wildest imagination, while you're there, you can't possibly imagine what I could do through you. Now let's go back out on the water. I don't wanna leave this all in our minds. I wanna give us some, some things to take home. So I want you to go back with me out on the water. I want you to get back on your wakeboard and really briefly think about this. Um, if you've coached, those of you who have coached or done things like that, uh, you, uh, there's a strategy that you use when, when somebody's trying to accomplish something, especially if it involves fear. Like, you're a human being. The first time you throw an air rally, you're gonna be afraid because you know the, con the potential consequences of what's going on. I was also a gymnast. Um, what was it with me? I just like to put my body and throw it around in potentially dangerous situations. That was my childhood in a nutshell. But when you're advising somebody to attempt something that involves fear, if you're a coach, you can back me up, there's a strategy you use. You never give somebody too much to think about. 
When you're, and, and I think this is a, a principle we can apply here. When you're in the thick of it, when you're in the heat of battle, focus on a few things. Focus on a few things. So I just brought it two biblical principles to you about ways, actions we can take, things we can do right now that will help us move in the direction of living with greater faith. Two things, one, abide in Christ. My scripture reference for the, the encouragement to abide in Christ is the entire book of 1 John. If you're looking for something to do later today, open up the book of 1 John and count how many times the apostle encourages us all to abide in Christ. And remember, John was like Jesus' buddy. He was like his buddy. And through the Holy Spirit, don't get me wrong, I know that God himself is speaking through those words, but you're reading the words of Jesus' buddy, and his advice is, you, is to abide in Christ. Do that. Number two, be an open book to someone of faith. Be an open book to someone of faith. We were, we're not meant to ratchet up crazy all by ourselves. That's trouble. <laughs> the crazy I'm looking for, the crazy I'm encouraging for is the crazy of the gospel and greater faith lived. Uh, one more verse from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17 Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Um, end with a personal confession. I have a personal confession to make. I have a big dream. I have dared to dream big for the glory of God, and here it is. I have dreamt of, prayed for, bona fide revival. I mean, if I'm gonna be in this gig, you know, I don't want to do this just to pass time, you know. One of my one of my favorite teachers. I don't know why this is popping in my head, Michael, but church is a is a is a horrible hobby, <laughs> you know. There are other things we could be doing. So I dream about bona fide revival. Um, so a few years back, I purchased a couple of domain names. You know what I'm talking about? Like you go to the internet and. Um, I bought these, um, midmichiganrevival.com and midmirevival.com. I'm the proud owner of these don't name names. Um, but then I thought, you know, Michael, don't limit the whole Holy Spirit here. I, mean, I know you live in mid-Michigan, but maybe, maybe in the act of buying the don't name name, I should demonstrate a little faith even in the process of buying the don't name name. So I also went ahead and purchased just straight up michiganrevival.com and mirevival.com, because I mean, maybe he wants to move outside mid-Michigan. I, I can't possibly know if that's his plan, and I want to be ready for that if that happens. So every year, when I get the email, um, would you like to renew your revival domain names? I say a little prayer that someday I might need these. And what I hope is that the efforts that we're making here in New Hope to teach to love, to serve, to praise, the efforts we are making to fan out into our community with this gospel will result in more and more of us willing to dare great faith for what could be in a new year, what could be the power of God is limitless. Has the power of God changed? When Jesus said we could move mountains, no, we all know that. What could be? I want more and more of us eager to deploy some of these domain names. It could be. 
Could be. All right, last exercise. I want to give you the opportunity and the time to simply ask God this question. God, how would you have me live for you this year? We talked a little bit. We examined what it meant to be a Christian. We talked about the radical nature of that concept. We talked about being nuts. We've looked at evidence that God has done great things through people and is promised to continue to do them. That same power exists in this fellowship, in this church, and in all the believers sitting here. God, how would you have me live for you this year? So I want to give you a couple minutes to examine that, think about that. A couple uh, words of advice. I want to clarify this moment for you. One, be prepared for a couple things. One, God may convict you of a sin. That may happen. That's okay. The second thing is, anything that you believe God is speaking to you, you always test it against the word of God. Always test it against the word of God. And I'll add number three, you also always test it against another mature person of faith. This isn't mysticism. However, I do believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And I wanna give him time to do that. So Matt's gonna play a little bit. Why don't you bow your heads? I will, I will get us started and then we'll pray.